somebody and tell them good morning. At your name, the mountains shake and crumble. 
Good morning. I wondered how long it would be before the word coronavirus would come up in the service. Oh. You're not supposed to talk back at me when I'm talking. My hearing isn't that good. You know, the clap after that song felt like, it, it just. I'm looking around, I've told like eight or nine of you, Nancy Mize needs to stand at the door and hand out her business card. We are the only ones left in Lovekin. Everybody else is on spring break. Do not go to Disney World. It seems like the whole city's at Disney World. But I am, I am so glad you're here with me and Julie, who can't afford to go. Well, we don't, we don't really want to go on a cruise right now, so I'm not sure what we'll do. Mexico, lots of people in Mexico. That's right. That's right. I think we're going to Taco Casa later today. So it's just, it's just the same. So if you're, if you're not with us, if you're in Mexico or you're in Florida at Disney World, we're going to heaven, and you're just, I mean, you're just kind of stuck. 
I'm kidding. That's really bad theology. Everybody lighten up. I'll fix that later. I get to preach in a while, but I am, I'm glad you're here. It is, it is great to see you this morning. Welcome. Um, we are going to do what we always do, and uh, there's plenty of room, so spread out. Next week, we'll have more people back, but thank you for being here and holding down the fort, and uh, it's going to be a beautiful week. So um, uh, if you take your worship guides, I do want to highlight a couple things. Uh, we have some family business I want to go over with you this morning. Um, it is spring break, so that means we're not going to have our normal, uh, for the schools, so we're not going to have our normal Wednesday night service. We will resume those next Wednesday night, and we will start with a, uh, a, a new series out of the book of First Peter called Hunted, and uh, we have been discussing uh, evil in the world, uh, a Ravi Zachariah sur survey that Kip Havard, who is also on spring break vacation in, uh, where is he, in North Carolina or somewhere? I don't know, but he flew. He's where? South Carolina? Myrtle Beach. Yeah. With, uh, that, there's a lot of coronavirus in Myrtle Beach, I'm sure. But uh, he, uh, he's been teaching for eight weeks this series on evil with, with a Zach Ravi Zacharias series. It's been fantastic. And one of the things we want to do is now we're going to talk about what has the church done in the past when they've lived in very difficult times? And that's First and Second Peter. That's what that's all about. Peter's exhorting the church how to live in difficult times. So we're going to be studying that on Wednesday night. It's going to be a, a conversation. So that will begin not this Wednesday night because we don't have church, but next Wednesday night. And uh, we'll resume our kids' programs and stuff like that and our student ministry. So we would love to have you uh, jump back into that. Um, if you're visiting with us this morning or you're watching online, we're glad to have you with us, and, and uh, we hope that you're encouraged. We want you to like Carpenter's Way, of course. We want you to like us, but we want you to fall in love with Jesus. That's really what we want in our prayer for you. So in a moment, we, in a few moments, we are going to take our offering. If you're visiting with us this morning, don't give. This is for those who attend here regularly. We're just glad to have you here this morning. I do want you to open your worship guides, uh, Carpenter's Way folks, because I want to highlight a few things that we have upcoming. Uh, some family business. We are very, very excited to announce that Jared Pig is now our associate missions pastor. As you know, Robert Grimes is our missions pastor, and uh, Jared Pig is going to be working with Robert overseeing our missions program. Program. For those of you who've been with at Carpenter's Way and our members, you know that we have a vast missions uh, program, and it's growing. And so we're very, very excited for him to be working with Robert to add uh, Jared Pig to our pastoral staff is a wonderful thing. So be praying for him and uh, and encourage him as well. Um, I do want to some, – some people have been asking about, uh, you know, the coronavirus fears and all that stuff. And, and I want you to know that if um, – um, how do I say this? We, we have plans in place. We, we are ready for whatever comes as a church. I know people talk about large gatherings and is it safe? If the time comes where, where we need to do this digitally, we're set up for that. And uh, we, Jeff and I and the worship team will gather here and you can do it online and we can talk and minister to each other. I just want everybody to take a deep breath. We're going to, I told you if this building ever burned down, we'd meet in the ashes, right? Well, we're, we're not stopping. We're going to keep serving the Lord, and uh, we may make some adjustments, but we want you safe, and, and we want you not freaking out. And uh, God is the great physician. Um, that doesn't mean we go and, and, and lick dirty poles around town to see how sick and he healthy God can keep us. But on the other hand, don't, don't let what the world is worried about living. One of the things we as children of God don't need to worry about is living because we've got eternal life. 
And so we are people of hope. I just, I just wanted to make you aware. The elders and I were talking last week, and and they want you to know that that this is not. We're not just sleeping. And and uh, one thing you can help us with is to make sure that we have, if you regularly attend Carpenter's Way, in your worship guide is a little guest registration card that you can rip off. It's just information. If you are not sure if we have your cell phone number. Um, if you would just rip that off, put your cell phone number in there and your name, and we'll make sure we have it in our database. Why? Why would that help? Because if 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 we heard from the health department something that someone in our church had the illness, we would want to make you aware. Or if we need to adjust some times or something for any kind of emergency, that's the way we do it. We have a program that allows us to text you. Uh, you may not know that because we don't do it very often. I mean, when we cancel a Wednesday night because of a storm or something like that. But short of that, that's how we'll communicate with you. That that's, uh, that's just how we do that. So if you're not sure, if Carpenter's Way is your home church and you're not sure that you, you're in our database, would you just take this that registration card, fill it out with the phone number, and we'll be in touch directly with you. One of the things we don't want to do is have a phone tree. If we call one person and say, you know, we need help sweeping the parking lot, by the time it's done, the parking lot and the building burn down and 42 people are dead. So we're, we, we want to talk to you directly, so that's that's how we do that. So that's how we're going to handle all the stuff, whether it's a snowstorm with 12 inches or coronavirus or a bad flu bug. But uh, we just need you to help us with that with that information. If you have any questions, feel free to text me or email me or call the office. We just we just want you to know that we're we're going to keep serving the Lord and not let the world distract us. That doesn't mean we're foolish, and if, if we need to make some adjustments, we will make those adjustments. That sound okay? Spring break. Okay. All right. Good enough. Let's see. Did I do all of it? Uh, Jared Pig? Yeah, that's all of it. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward at this time as we prepare for our offering. Um, we have a new members class coming up at the end of the month. The information's in the worship guide about that. So that's all. Let me pray, and we'll commit the rest of our service to the Lord, and we'll let our worship team take over. And we're going to be uh, in Luke 10 this morning. So thanks for being here. I'm going to ask the Lord to bless us. Father God, we love you, and we're so glad that people can move around this country. And thank you that we live in a time where we can travel. And <clears throat> as school takes a break this week, Lord, we think of all the families, Father, that are out there and moving around. And I pray that you would bless them, um, that you would bless our, our Carpenter's Way folks that, that are away with their kids and at the beach or at Disney or, or wherever you've allowed them to go. I pray you'd keep them healthy. I pray that the family bonds would be would be tightened, uh, that value systems, worldview families would, would spend time together talking about what's important and especially you and just bless them, Father. And for those of us who are staying here this week, I pray you'd bless us. I pray we'd have a wonderful week. Uh, Father, our, our country and our world is freaking out. Thank you that we know the King of Kings, the great physician. Thank you that we can trust you. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would be a people of hope in hopeless times and as we turn our eyes now, turn our, our hearts and our eyes away from church business, Lord, would you just bless us this morning? We, we ask you to teach us, to speak to us, to, uh, to encourage us. And for those watching online and those here in this room that don't know you, may today be the day of salvation. And for those who do, may today be the day of encouragement. So we commit our service to you. We ask you to continue to bless Carpenter's Way as you have in the past. And we thank you for being part of us and allowing us to gather. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray.
like passes. If you want to stand and worship with us, you're more than welcome.
blessing and honor, glory and power forever to our God. And he has wiped away the stain of all our sin and shame, and he's asked us to come and rest, oh, Since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most.
Lift him high, all praise to Jesus. Oh, lift him high for all to see. Lift him high, the cross of Calvary, where mercy died to sin. Great. 
Jesus, lift him high for all to see. Lift him high, the cross of Calvary, where mercy died to set us free. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. That our slavery to sin has been defeated and that we can come to you this morning knowing that we have been accepted, that we're no longer the enemies of God, but we're the friends of God. And Father, I pray this morning that you would help us to um, just understand a little bit more about you, a little bit more about what you want us to know about your plan and your purposes in life, and help us to understand that you're worthy of our trust. As the children now go to their programming, Father, through third grade, we pray you'd bless them and that you'd give the uh, teachers, just you'd anoint them with your spirit and these kids' lives would be transformed from the inside out. And as we as adults and uh, older kids stay in here, may your Holy Spirit speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you know, but it's Jim uh, Kennedy's birthday today. Yeah. Happy birthday, Jim. You're welcome. Did you guys know I had a grandbaby last week? Yeah. Somebody asked if I was going to say something. I said no. I lied. Yeah. And uh, I want you know, I was thinking about what we could do together uh, for spring break this week. And I realized that Julie and I are going for Monday and Tuesday and, and Wednesday. We're going to go to Dallas and uh, help with our grandbaby. And I wanted to invite all of you to come. So if you're going to be in the Dallas area, you text me. Now, you're going to have to stay outside and look through the window. But I will show you the most beautiful baby you've ever seen. And I, it's weird. I'm telling you, I think I'm grandpa blind for real because uh, he really is handsome. He is. He's, he looks just like his grandfather. So, all right, let's, let's jump right into our text. Luke chapter 10, 30 to 37. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him up and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed by. A temple assistant, uh, some versions of the Bible say a Levite, walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan, listen to the parable, listen to how Jesus words the parable, it's important. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him, going over to him. The Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and he took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins. That's the value of two days labor. Two silver coins telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits, Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed his, him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now you go and do the same. That is the parable known as the Good Samaritan, as you know. It is uh, probably the most famous of all the parables, if not at least the parables in the Gospel of Luke. And while we do know um, this parable, one of the things that struck me as I was studying this week, and for those of you who are visiting with us or watching online for the first time, we're in the middle of a study right now called Who Is This Man? 
We are trying to go back to Scripture. We're going back to the Scriptures to find out who the Jesus of the Gospels is. So we're going through his ministry and life from all four Gospels, trying to discover what did he say about himself? What did he teach? What did he emphasize? What did he do? Uh, as if we're following with the disciples. And, and I, I want to be clear. While some stories tell us exactly when it happened and some stories happen on, on one day, a lot of big stories happen on one or two day period, some stories we don't know exactly where they lay during the timeline of Jesus' life or the chronology of Jesus' life and ministry, but we do know the seasons. And this particular story, the parable, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan takes place in the last seed of months of Jesus' ministry. He is clearly heading towards Jerusalem to be arrested, to be killed. He's been talking about the fact that he's going to leave them. He's even told the Pharisees that they need to be saved before he leaves. He tells the disciples that he's going to be arrested. He's going to be killed. He's going to rise from the dead, but then he's going to leave them uh, after a, a certain period of time. So Jesus is wrapping up his ministry. And what he is doing during this, uh, this period of his ministry is while he is still preaching and teaching and ministering to, to people, he is predominantly spending time helping the disciples know what their task is going to be once he leaves. Uh, again, Jesus, when he leaves the scene, he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And when we're done with this study, we're going to go right into Acts to ask, what is the purpose of the church? Why are we still here? Why didn't we go right to heaven when we were saved? And that's answered in the book of Acts. But Jesus sends the Holy Spirit who inhabits us. And basically what we do, in a nutshell, is we finish the ministry of Jesus. What he was doing while he was here, after he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven where he, seats, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, he's left the disciples with that task and ultimately us with that task. And so it's really, really important for us at this season of his ministry to slow down, watch what he does, listen to what he teaches within its context so that we have an idea of what God is asking from us today in East Texas. What is God asking from us? While the parable of the Good Samaritan, and this was a fun week to study, because the parable of the Good Samaritan is well known, and I know it very well, I would dare say that the context is not. Most people, did my voice just crack? It just cracked. Bear with me. I'm, I'm going through puberty again. But the, the context of this parable is not known. And I want to tell you once again, I tell you almost every week, if you don't understand the context of what the, what the verse is you're studying or the story is you're studying, you are inclined to misunderstand what's being taught in that story. While <clears throat> Jesus is in the uh, final stages of his ministry, while he's spending most of his time with the disciples, as I've already said, He's having conversation with people, and one day, Luke chapter 10, verse 25, says this happened. One day, an expert in religious law, a Jewish lawyer, stood up to test Jesus. We, we read through quickly. I want you to understand what he's doing. He's testing him by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you understand what a lawyer of religious law is asking, right? He's setting Jesus up. It says that he's testing him. He's not curious how he can be saved. He's actually interested in what Jesus teaches. He's setting Jesus up. He's trying to point out to those listening and those following that Jesus isn't really a Jew, that he's not orthodox in his doctrine, Jewish doctrine, that Jesus is a problem. And he's asking the question that I believe most people, if Jesus was physically walking around today, would ask. What do I have to do to be saved? What does an individual need to do in order to receive eternal life? Now, don't misunderstand. 
This man isn't really interested in what Jesus believes. He's testing him. In other words, he's trying to show that Jesus isn't good enough for Judaism or Jews to follow, despite referring to himself as a rabbi. Again, remember that this man is not asking for mercy and grace from God through Jesus. He's not asking for the gift of forgiveness. He's asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 26, Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? In other words, you're a teacher of religious law. You're you're a lawyer. You're a Jewish lawyer. You tell me what the law says. You're asking me how a man gets saved. You tell me from the law. The man answered, well, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. To which Jesus responded, right. Go do that and you'll live. Wow. I think sometimes we forget that Jesus is the writer of that law. Jesus was there on Mount Sinai with Moses, helping him for that month he's up there, understand what he would need to know to write the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, the first five books of Jewish law. The Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is the Torah. It's the first five books. It is called the book of the law. It's what the Jews go to to find out what God expects from them. Jesus wrote that. Not only that, Jesus wrote the summary page of it. You know the summary page as the Ten Commandments. Those Ten Commandments written by the finger of Jesus in the stone tablets are actually a summary of the expectations of God for the Jewish man or woman. If you keep those, you'll be considered righteous. But you also may not know that there's a summary statement. Not only do you have five books of the law summarized in two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments on them, but the Ten Commandments are summarized in both uh, Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18, but the Ten Commandments are summarized also in this Jewish lawyer statement. That's the summary statement of the Ten Commandments, which is a summary statement of the five books. And the summary statement is, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and your strength. Now, Now, I want you to look at it. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, all your soul. I mix those two up. And you must love your neighbor as yourself. If you can do that, you won't break any of the Ten Commandments. You'll keep the Sabbath holy. You won't commit adultery. You won't steal people's toys. Uh, You won't have to worry about the laws. The laws will take care of themselves. This is the summary statement of the Ten Commandments, which is the summary statement of the five books, which is the complete law. Make sense? So this lawyer, a Jewish lawyer, wants to know from this supernatural messianic character that he doesn't believe in. He wants to embarrass him. He wants to test him. What do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, you tell me, what does the law say? He explains the law to which Jesus doesn't argue. Yeah, you're right. If you do that, you'll be saved. Now, that may shock you, but I want you to pay attention. Jesus wasn't being cute here. He wasn't being clever. Jesus is actually telling this guy an answer to his question. How do you save yourself? My unsaved friend, this is how you save yourself. Not this verse, but the one before it. If you want to save yourself, You have to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with everything you are, and you have to perfectly love your neighbor as yourself. 
That's how you save yourself. Kind of weird, huh? Um, the only problem with this saving yourself thing, loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, and loving your neighbor as much as you love yourself, the only problem with that is you have to do it perfectly as God says perfection. It's not your standards or my standards or the church's standards. It's not your mother's or your grandfather's. They don't get to judge. God is the judge, the holy judge, the perfect judge. And he's the one who will determine whether or not you have loved the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your being, and he will be the one who determines whether you, say you love your neighbors yourself. Jesus wasn't disagreeing with the law. He was saying, yep, the problem with the law is most people don't understand its purpose. And we have talked about this a lot, but I want to remind you of what Romans 3, 19 and 20 says. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given. For its purpose, now pay attention to this, is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. Its purpose is to show our guilt. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. Why? Because the law simply shows us how sinful we are. Let me write it another way. The law simply shows you how you're falling short. That's the conversation going on with, with Jesus and this Jewish lawyer. Jesus isn't telling this guy that his law is wrong. He's pointing out to this guy that he hasn't kept the law that he teaches. This isn't the only place in Romans that talks about this. In Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is made right with God by faith in, Christ, in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one can ever be made right with God by obeying the law. In verse 21, a few verses later, Paul actually goes on to say that when he was a Pharisee, every ounce of his energy was put in being a law keeper. And he goes on to say that even he fell short. He couldn't measure up. In this conversation between the religious lawyer, the Jewish lawyer, and Jesus, Jesus is using its law, the law that he wrote within its designated purpose to show this self-righteous jerk who sets him up that he has fallen short, that he himself can't save himself. Because what this guy is doing is, is claiming to be an authority while the people watching watch Jesus fumble around to answer, and Jesus doesn't. He simply uses the law within its purpose to show that the entire world is guilty before God, including Jewish lawyers. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 21b through 22, if the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. But the scriptures declare that we're prisoners of sin. So we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. I, I, you might be thinking, why doesn't Jesus just say these things? Why doesn't he just come right out and say it to this guy? Why mislead him by, <clears throat> by, by using the law and being fancy in his words or <clears throat> trying to set this guy up? But I want you to understand that you're thinking as an American who speaks English, 
this Jewish lawyer knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Look at verse 29. The very next thing the man does, the man wanted to justify his actions, which were not up to the standards that he himself, he said, you must accomplish in order to be saved. The man wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? That is a great question. I think it's a funny question because that's what you do when you fall short. That's what we do in seminary class. When we find out that we're not good enough, even though we say we're not good enough, but we really believe we're good enough, when we get to that theological point where we are trapped by God, when we know we're sinners, we change the subject. And what this guy is doing, let me be clear, since this religious man knew that he wasn't capable of loving God with all of his heart, all of his mind, all of his soul, all of his being, since he knew he couldn't do that, and since He's not even there because he can't get there. He's at the neighbor question. He wants Jesus to redefine the word neighbor. Yes, but who is your neighbor? Again, let me read the whole conversation for you. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, well, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus said, exactly right. Do that and you'll live. The man wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? He wanted to justify his failures is what he's doing. This guy wasn't seeking mercy from the judge who just pointed out that he had fallen short. He's not seeking forgiveness or grace from the one who could cast him in hell, that he's already identified as some sort of supernatural authority. He doesn't fall to his knees. He seeks to trap Jesus by showing that he didn't line up with the Jewish law when Jesus explained the Jewish law. To be clear, when Jesus points out his sinfulness, this guy doesn't fall on his face. He seeks to justify his shortfall. What he's actually saying is, well, nobody could do that, which is exactly Jesus' point. What does he want to do? To legally define the word neighbor. Some of you are familiar. We've seen this in our own lifetime. It depends what the word is, is. It's what we do. If we don't want to bow, we argue. We try to out-yell. We try to out-reason. That's what self-righteousness does. It spends its time and its life telling everybody else what God expects from them while they themselves making excuse for their own behavior. Instead of seeking mercy from God and living that mercy out, it self-justifies. Rather than bow the knee, the self-righteous person wants to argue the parameters of sin, so while sinning, they are still within the range of acceptability. And I would argue legalism in the church today does the same thing. Legalism exists because we don't want to bow the knee to God. So what we do is we come up with eight or nine things that we don't do that we think nobody else should do, and we tell them not to do it because we don't do it, and then we feel good about ourselves. It has nothing to do with God. I want to remind you that the question that this religious leader asked was not, how can, you, how can I be saved by you, but how can I gain eternal life? Uh, it was Jared Pig a few months ago that pointed this out, and I, I've shared this with you before because it's been very mind-changing for me. 
If we ask people, if, you were to, if we were to take a survey of East Texas Christians and say, um, uh, tell me about how you're saved or how do you know you're saved? They'll say, well, I prayed a prayer. I went to church. I was baptized. I'm a member of Carpenter's Way Baptist Church. What's wrong with that? It's I. I did this. I did that. Now, I understand the process. I understand why we do that. But I want you to understand that we really have the same doctrinal flaws that this religious Jewish uh, a lawyer had. We still think that it's us gaining a, person, a certain element of wisdom and, and that we do something, and then all of a sudden we receive something. The truth is that when we realize just how sinful we are, that even the good things that we try to do, like be a Jewish lawyer, that that doesn't measure up, when we go in our self-righteousness and we feel pretty good about ourselves and we go to Jesus and say, I've done pretty good, what else? What am I missing, Jesus? Even if you're sincere, Jesus, what am I missing to be saved? Jesus points out what you're missing. I want to remind you that we're three uh, years into his ministry and within the first six months of his ministry, do you remember the Sermon on the Mount? He did this exact same thing. While he's out doing the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is preaching to religious people who feel good about their morality, their religiosity. And Jesus said, you say you've never committed adultery. Well, good for you. Unfortunately, the judge says if you've lusted, you've committed adultery. That's in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you say you've never murdered. That's another of the Ten Commandments. Good for you. The judge says, if you've ever hated somebody, you're guilty of murder. You see, the problem is we can sit in a circle as people and we can look at each other and we can decide what's a good person and what's a bad person. The problem is we don't get to decide who's a good person and a bad person. The judge does. That's God. And his standards are perfection. It's not just if you love God, but you have to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and body. It's not just loving your neighbor. It's loving your neighbor as yourself. The problem is we can't do that. No matter how nice a person you are, there's always somebody you're prejudiced against. There's always somebody that you resent. There's always somebody that rubs you wrong. There's always somebody that treats you harshly. And I want to remind you that part of the requirement is with your mind. Loving God, trusting God, that means even in your mind you can't doubt him. Have you ever doubted God? You fall short. The point isn't rising to that. It's accepting his grace, not able to achieve that. If you could do this without a sin nature, you can save yourself. But Jesus' point in the law, Jesus' point here, Jesus' point in the Sermon on the Mount is you can't do what you think you're doing. You can't accomplish this. The answer when somebody asks you, how do you know you're saved, is not I, I, I. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. How do you know you're saved? Because I accepted his work on the cross. His blood was shed for my failure. He's transforming me. How do you know you're saved? The Holy Spirit is doing a work in my life. He's changing me from the inside out. Well, what if he's not doing a work in my life? You have every right to question your salvation then. That's what the New Testament teaches about the fruit of the Spirit. That's what Jesus is talking about. Back to the parable. It is that context, a discussion on what must I do to have eternal life, that question. 
It's that context where we come to Luke 10.30. Jesus replied with a story. The context of this question, of this parable that you hear all the time, that I hear all the time, that I am confident I know the application to, is the question of how, what do I have to do to gain eternal life? And it is in that context that Jesus replies with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from, a Jewish, <clears throat> from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him up, and they left him half dead beside the road. By chance, yeah, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, picture this in your mind, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there. But he also passed by on the other side. Two Jews, two religious leaders, ignore their Jewish brother who's been beat up, left naked, and dying on the side of the road. Then a despised Samaritan. Can you imagine what this Jewish legal uh, lawyer is thinking? Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey, and he took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. In our application-oriented season of Christianity, this appears to be a story about loving others better than we do at this time. But within the context, this parable is actually an indictment. It's an indictment of how we fall short to God's glorious standard of loving him and loving others. Every detail of the story, and I need you to listen to this with a Jewish heart, because every detail of this story offended that lawyer. For instance, uh, in, a Jewish, in Jewish culture, and you, you can kind of sense this, but in Jewish culture, Jews were already always the hero, right? And if there was a, a, a hero in a Jewish story, the Jewish religious leaders were always the hero. Well, there's another character of every Jewish story, and that is you're always going to Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem's where the temple is. Jerusalem's where you go to worship. Jerusalem is the mothership of all things Jewish. So it shows that the man who was traveling, who was abused, was a good Jew. He was an innocent Jew. He was a sincere Jew. But Jesus actually starts this story by saying that the victim was heading not to the capital of Jerusalem, but away from Jerusalem to Jericho where Gentiles ruled. That was the first thing that had to make this lawyer go, you got to be kidding me. Who are you? What kind of rabbi are you? In a Jewish religious parable, one more time, the victim would have been going to the temple in Jerusalem to simply worship God. The road <clears throat> was well known. This road that he's talking about was dangerous. It was a 17-mile stretch of mountainous winding road that actually rises 3,000 feet. It was hard to go on. It was difficult, and it was usually taken by groups of people because people would rob people on that road regularly. A priest one of the people in the story in the very beginning, this would have offended him. Surely a man of God would stop and help another Jew, but for whatever reason, for whatever reason, the priest doesn't. He doesn't care about him. It says that he looks and sees him lying there and he crosses over to the other side of the road. And then the Levite, the temple assistant, 
another religious man of God, whose family it was responsibility to take care of the Jewish people. He actually goes over to the body. That you get this sense here that he knows he's alive. And he crosses over and he walks on. That's not how you tell a good Jewish parable to a Jew. Jesus is offending this man because the question was, what was the question? Who's my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? To top it off, this upside-down parable being told by a Jewish rabbi, Jesus, to a Jewish lawyer has a despised Samaritan, which is actually in the text, feeling compassion for his hated Jewish enemy. Now, I know that in the church you're used to hearing that the Jews hated the Samaritans. But I hope in our time with studying Jesus' life that you've come to understand the Samaritans didn't much like the Jews either. They had been so mistreated by him, by them that reverse prejudice was a big deal. This despised Samaritan also despised Jews. But when he sees that guy, he has compassion on him. And he not only binds his wounds with his own stuff, but he puts him on a horse, takes him to town, pays an innkeeper to take care of him, two days' wages, and promises that if there's any more cost, he'll come back and pay him. Verse 36. Now, which of these three, Jesus asked, would you say a uh, was a neighbor to a man who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked him. The man replied, the one who showed mercy. Then Jesus said, yeah, now you go do that. That's the last we hear about this guy. We have no other knowledge of uh, we have no other knowledge of what happens to this Jewish law, lawyer, but I can certainly tell you his thoughts after this conversation. I can't do that. I can't go do this. I'd lose my position among the Sanhedrin. I would no longer be allowed to practice law. I'd be cast out of my my family synagogue. My family would probably disown me. It would cost me everything to love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, soul, and body and love my neighbor as myself, if that's the standard. It would cost me everything. And I work too hard for all that I am, all that I have. I just can't do that. I hope you understand by now in our series as we continue towards the cross that Jesus didn't just teach doctrine. He painted pictures. Jesus was an artist. He painted pictures for us clear, understandable, convicting pictures to teach truth. It is one thing for a smart Jewish man to know the law that says you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and love your next door neighbor as yourself. But to find out that anyone in need is your neighbor, even a despised Samaritan, even a dead Jewish guy if he's dead, there are people who like to, to, to assume why the temple officers didn't help him. Some say that the priest thought he was dead, and if he touched him, he would be unclean ceremonial for a week. Jesus says, it doesn't matter. I don't care. I didn't create you for the law. I created the law for you. And the purpose of the law is to show you that you fall short. The purpose of the law is to show us that we are desperate for mercy and grace. Jesus would say in his ministry over and over that I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father except through me. 
Jesus would teach that I'm the light if you follow me in last week's text. If you follow me, you don't have to live in darkness anymore. Jesus would teach, come to me for spiritual rest. Jesus said, with man, salvation is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. This is almost a parallel story to the story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and said, I've done all the law demands. What must I do now to be saved? And Jesus says, sell all you have and give to the poor. This is the same story, just a different thing, same message. It tells us in that other story that the man left weeping bitterly. He doesn't fall on his face. He doesn't seek mercy from God. I want to bring this home now. Because there's two audiences for this story being told back then. The first audience is obviously the lost, self-righteous Jew, who now knows that he has fallen short of God's demands of him. And if he is to save himself, he's going to have to do the impossible. Now, he must decide to roll the dice and die in his sin, hoping that God the Father isn't serious as Jesus is, or bow the knee and seek mercy from a God he has offended. That's his choice. Galatians 2.16 tells us we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God. Please notice, be made right. Not make yourself right. But we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ. There is one work that will save you, and that is putting your trust in Christ's offer to forgive you. Not because we obeyed the law, but by faith in Christ. For no one can ever be made right by, with God by obeying the law. If you are a good moral person, it's still not good enough. That's the problem with God being the judge. Absolute perfection is necessary. And so if you are like this man, today is the day of salvation. Now you know. Now you know. Sitting around and debating with Jesus over what the definition of neighbor is isn't going to solve your spiritual crisis. It's time to accept his offer to forgive you from your sin. It doesn't matter what you've done and how many times you've done it. If you know you're a sinner and he's the only one that can save you, call on the name of the Lord. Confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. It is a tragedy that this story doesn't end with this man bowing the knee to Jesus Christ. It would be a tragedy for you to end your life or continue living your life in the flesh. It would be a tragedy. But there is a second audience, and it's the disciples who are watching all this take place. They were saved by faith. They had received mercy from God. But I want you to remember that when Jesus called these men to follow him, he told them that if they would follow him, he would do what? He would make them fishers of men, right? Fishers of men. What they didn't understand and what they would need to do if they were going to fulfill God's task for them when he leaves is not just talk to Jews that were clean, but what they were going to be offering through Jesus Christ was salvation and forgiveness to anyone who sought it, including people they were repulsed by, even offended by, and prejudiced against. You see, that's where the story comes into play for the believer. The fact is, we're Gentiles. We're not Jews. You are a despised Gentile to the Jewish people. We are that guy. 
The question is, who do we see as our neighbor? There's always some. There was a scene in Star Wars. I, I know I'll wake some of you up with this. It's the dumbest Star Wars movie. I don't remember which one it is. It's just the dumbest one where they're going through the planet in the water in the sea ship. Help me. There's a geek in this room somewhere. You knew it. Number two. Thank you. Attack of the Clones. You need to get a life. Okay, so they're going through, and they're in a sea ship, and they're going through the middle of the sea, and there's a fish that grabs onto him. Remember that? The fish grabs onto him. And one of the one of the Jedi's is freaking out, and the other Jedi's like, I we're gonna be fine, just hold on. And a bigger fish comes along and eats that fish. There's always a bigger fish, he says. There's always somebody you're gonna hate more than somebody who hates you. That's the problem. Somebody whose culture is different than yours, somebody who listens different from music, somebody who sins differently. There's always gonna be somebody who's repulsive to you. And I, I want to say something really off the wall. I don't think that you'll ever get over your prejudice. I'm not talking about racial prejudice. I'm talking about social prejudice. I'm talking about behavioral prejudices, moral prejudices. Um, I, there's always going to be somebody that is more that is going to repulse you. I don't care how repulsive you have been to others. And you're always going to have that response. The question is, do you love God more than yourself? That's the question. Will you love them because it's the right thing to do and the Holy Spirit has shown you your own depravity? The problem with this guy is he didn't think he was depraved. He, he, didn't, he can't even fathom helping a Samaritan, letting alone, let alone allowing a Samaritan to touch him. You guys, God has planted us here in a time such as this, with such twisted thoughts in our country, not so that we can huddle up and hate on the world and Hollywood and all their disgustingness, but because we are the answer to their self-righteous depravity. We have the answer. They need Jesus. They don't need you. They don't need me. They don't need the church. They need Jesus, just like you needed Jesus. The problem is, for most of us, we grow up, we got saved at very young ages, so we really don't know how much we need Jesus because we've been saved our whole lives, just like this Jewish lawyer he grew up in Hebrew school. He was excellent at it, so we know from history that he was chosen from among, among the pack of boys to be educated and educated and educated, and as he became more brilliant in the ways of Judaism, he kept getting higher positions until he's in this high position. He was the best of the best. There's just one problem. He believed it. And there's one problem with Christians. Somewhere along the line, we started believing that we're actually better than everybody else. And we're not. We're not better than everybody else. We are just the children of God who have been redeemed by a merciful God, who have been inhabited by the Holy Spirit, who have been left here to love Jesus like Jesus did, to love others like Jesus did. Would you put 1 John 4, 19 up there for me, please? This is why we love them. Not because they're nice or pretty or clean or moral. Not because they're in our sweet spot of ministry. We love them because he loved us when we were nasty and dirty and depraved. This story has two applications. You're never going to be good enough to save yourself, religious person. And those of you who have been saved... Love your neighbor like Jesus loves your neighbor. That's all this is about. 
gay, straight, bisexual, East Texan, California, vegan, vegetarian. I can't think of any other words. I, I'm, I, I should have written a bunch down. That would have been really cool. Clean, dirty, white, black, illegal and legal, American, Iranian. Whoever God brings in our path is our neighbor. And our job is to minister to them. Because to fulfill the law, well, I don't have to fulfill the law because I'm saved by Jesus. Well, now that the Holy Spirit is in you, He's going to transform you. We've all got prejudices. Love them anyway. It is what it is. Love them anyway. We love because he first loved us. I really want to be clear, though. We can't do what we have been tasked to do by our father, family. We can't do it on our own no matter how good our programming is and how much money we throw at it. We need his eyes, his heart, his voice in our ears. We need his spirit to empower, guide, and direct us if we're going to finish this task well. And that means when the media is telling you that coronavirus is going to kill us, we don't stop, even if we die. What's the worst that can happen? We go home? Well, you don't sound afraid. I'm probably going to die of a heart attack, not coronavirus. I've been eating your food too long. Nobody's getting out of this life without, well, maybe, some, maybe we'll be raptured, but probably not. We're probably all going to die. That is not a doctrinal statement, okay? Maybe we'll be raptured, but we're all going to die of something. I'd rather die serving. What about you? I want to go out right. But to do that, I've got to get on my knees and give my life to Christ, even as a child of God. Let's close in prayer. Father, uh, this message has 300 applications, one for every heart in this room, and each of us know people we do not like. Uh, but you have asked us to love them, even if we don't like them. You've asked us to love them. We cannot do that without your Holy Spirit's empowerment, without the mind of Christ and the heart of Christ. So I ask you right now, for your children in this room, that instead of saying, I'm going to love people I don't like, may we simply say, I am going to give my life to Jesus Christ, whatever that means. Because this is only one part of our task. So may we not only commit ourselves to this task, but may we commit every task, every part to you, and if there is somebody here today who has just realized that they are not good enough to save themselves, that they have never accepted your offer to forgive their sin, may today be the day that they experience the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord. I pray that this week, and I know, uh, you know, for those who have kids, this is a week off, and for many others it's not, but it's kind of a fun week because schools are out, and I just pray it would be a great week for everybody here, and that we would look around us and love on folks. And Lord, may we not be so scared of dying that we stop living. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
Bible study is going to start in about 10 minutes.